0: Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhary. Our show contains lots more global politics and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Const YouTube channel. Thanks and enjoy the show hi and welcome back to the committee program uh this time on deep cuts we're doing something really interesting because we spend a lot of time on the show talking about uh in fact we were just talking about just talking about we edit together the show not at all at the same time it appears live it's a hitchcockian miracle that we pull off uh Anyway, <laughs> we were just talking before about how we are always on the show dealing with American neocolonialism and looking at coups and other countries and stuff. But we have in the state of Hawaii, current state of Hawaii, a very interesting case of actual American colonialism, uh, the real actual thing. And so we're very grateful uh, for Julia putting together this panel today. And Julia, can you take us in?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely, Iran. thank you. Um, So today we have joining us Nolani Goodyear Kaopua, a Kanaka Mali scholar and political science professor at UH Manoa, She's going to be speaking to us today about Hawaii, its language, history, traditions and culture, as well as the struggle for sovereignty and the last few decades of activism around land rights and independence. She's also the editor or one of the editors of a fantastic and informative collection of essays about Hawaiian movements called A Nation Rising. Uh, Nolani, as I'm sure you know, many Americans are pretty ignorant about how Hawaii came to be incorporated into the U.S. So um, we wanted to first ask you to give us a little bit of background going back to the 20th century, 19th century. Uh, What happened, uh, what happened with uh, the Queen and how did the U.S. come to be involved in the Pacific and in Hawaii?
2: Aloha, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, happy to share, um, you know, in a nutshell, what uh, happened in terms of the US uh, occupation of Hawaii, which is ongoing to today, was really the, um, the joining of, of two forces. One was a white supremacist um, plantation elite here in Hawaii, some of whom were um, of American descent, but others were um, of European descent. Uh, descent as well Um, and they were seeking uh, ways to continue to grab land and to increase their profits Um, and at the same time the American expansion into the Pacific and you know the becoming of uh, a really kind of global scale empire for the United States um, was happening right with um, with its own white supremacism there as well. And um, those two forces really came together uh, such that Hawai'i was um, taken. Uh, The Queen Lili'uokalani, who was the ruling monarch uh, of Hawai'i in 1893, when um, the U.S. Marines backed the plantation elite here in overthrowing her, that takes place in 1893, and then the U.S. unilaterally seizes Hawaii in 1898, and that takes place at the same time as um, it also is taking Puerto Rico and Guam and American Samoa. So this is a moment of uh, U.S. expansion as as a global empire, um, and Hawaii was an important coaling station across as as the U.S. looked toward the Pacific in expanding toward the Pacific and Asia. Um, So that's kind of it in a nutshell, you know, uh, white supremacist capitalism (laughs) combines with um, imperialist militarism and we have the ongoing um, occupation of Hawaii.
1: Yeah, we um, so we, as Arun mentioned, we've talked to a lot of guests that have talked about uh, U.S. military presence around the world. And of course, a recurring theme is just um, not wanting people to take back their resources, whether or not, um, you know, whether or not the U.S. is directly controlling the government. We're very interested in holding on to the land and the water. Um, so I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about these plantations. What were they growing? How did that displace, you know, traditional agriculture um, and who is working there?
2: Sure. So. Um, just to back up a little bit, so Hawaii, you know, we are an archipelago in in the middle of the Pacific. We are part of a large oceanic family of um, of islands across the the most you know large um, ocean on the planet, and our ancestors sailed across this ocean um, in canoes that were made without metal, that were using the stars and winds and waves for navigational um, guides. And on these islands, we were able to develop a a complex society that was um, very much uh, masters of agriculture and aquaculture in ways that were sustainable. So here in Hawaii, um, our people populated the islands um, some estimates of up to a million people with you know no foreign inputs as far as uh, imports and whatnot which is um, it's a stunning thing to think about in comparison to today where the island that i live on oahu where waikiki and honolulu honolulu are located has a bit over a million people today but vast majority of our foods and clothing and everything are, are imported um so anyway, that was, you know, life was um, largely self-sustaining at, in, in those times. Um, the U.S. and other um, imperial powers become interested in Hawaii for a number of reasons, but particularly because of its location in the middle of the Pacific. And um, so Hawaii actually was able to secure um, recognition of our independence and had bilateral and multilateral treaties with nations um, around the world, but most notably the United States, France and Britain, who were um, you know, powerful imperial countries that were exer- exerting their force in the Pacific as well as in other parts of the globe. Um, so it was really significant that by 1843, Hawaii was in treaties with these countries where they were recognizing the independence and sovereignty of the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, at the same time, though, as I said, you know there were um, missionary descendants, for the most part, who were in Hawai'i, who as they um, grew and developed their c- careers, I guess you could say, um, created um, sugar plantations in Hawai'i. And so those sugar plantations um, did a couple of things. One is that they diverted water from the natural watersheds that fed Native Hawaiian developed agricultural systems for taro, for example, um, or sweet potato, various kinds of crops, um, to sugar, which was a cash crop. Um, and so, Native Hawaiians were the largest uh, force, uh, labor force, in those plantations in the early period. But um, because of introduced diseases and because of the rapidly growing size of some of these plantations, um, by the middle late nineteenth century, um, there are Asian laborers who are being brought in: um, first Chinese, later Japanese, um, and then later also Portuguese. Um, after the U.S. occupation begins, Puerto Ricans. So there are a number of different peoples, Filipinos. um, There are a number of different peoples who become the labor force within the plantations. Um, And then as I mentioned, as those plantations are growing, this is a very small, in terms of, you know, numbers of people uh, who were controlling the industry, but a large number of people, obviously, who were needing to work in that industry um, and a large amount of water. Sugar is a very thirsty crop, so it took a lot of water and diverted um, water. Land, so it was
0: already labor. that kind of tilt happening where because of this sort of extractivist kind of notions like... Uh, uh, imports were starting to uh, need to come in from some of these countries where there were the treaties. I mean, today, famously, as you said, everything on the island, cars, everything's super expensive because it's imported in from the outside. But does that happen right away because of these sugar, because of these sugar plantations? Like, how early does Hawaii become dependent uh, for foodstuffs uh, on neighbors and stuff because of some of these policies? Is that a mid 20th century thing? When when do you see that happening?
2: Yeah. Yeah, more toward the 20th century. Um, So what does happen, though, in the later part of the 19th century is that this white supremacist oligarchy um, with a militia, you know, arm themselves and um, are able to, through armed force, uh, install a constitution called the Bayonet Constitution, which is forced upon Lili'uokalani's brother, Kalakaua, which instituted for the very first time um, racial, r- racial and class restrictions on voting. So they you know, were literally sort of tearing a page out of what um, their colleagues in the US South were, were doing in terms of um, <clears throat> trying to impact um, a democratic system uh, and to have the political control um, so that they could expand their, their profits. Um, but there still was, at that time, you know, a lot of land uh, for the amount of population that we had. And we didn't have quite the pressures um, that we did. Once the U.S. takeover begins, this, the sugar industry really um continues to grow at at an exponential rate and tourism also begins and the military so you have a combination from the the 20th century early 20th century on of those three industries with sugar slowly declining um tourism and and militarisms growing yeah Mm. such that by them yeah go ahead
1: yeah Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, we've seen, um, you know, all over the world, there's been this imposition of monocropping, monocultures, the sort of destruction of local ecosystems, which were now, you know, people in the West are understanding more and more was very short sighted. Um, And it's also created these sort of, you know, dependent states all over the world Um, when you sort of combine. the agricultural policies that are imposed on people through colonialism or through IMF. Um, We know that structural adjustment all over the world has meant that uh, people have to grow the the crops that they can sell for the most money, which generally means, you know, corn or wheat or sugar. It's like a few things, Um, but ultimately it means that there are no more thriving ecosystems where people can just sort of live off the land. Um, So, To dig in a little bit to the two things you were mentioning, I want to touch on both of them separately, but let's start with the military presence in Hawaii. So this is obviously, you know, people know about Pearl Harbor, they, you know, know the history of that day. Um, but I don't know how much they're aware of, you know, the, the very large presence of the military, the continued bombing on the islands that has been protested as part of many different movements over the years. So uh, tell us a little bit about the anti-militarism and the, and the presence yeah, of the U.S. So, military in um, Hawaii.
2: This really gets us at the core of the issue, which is about land. And um, so if you think about the Hawaiian kingdom uh, representing roughly four million acres in the major islands, um, the eight major islands that are part of the archipelago. Of those four million acres, at the time when the U.S. took control of the islands in 1898, roughly half of them <coughs> had been controlled by the Hawaiian Kingdom government and and the monarch. All of those lands were illegally seized, and A large share of them were taken out for um, military usage. Um, And then in 1945, around World War II, a whole other set um, of lands were additionally um, put into military usage for a a number of things, you know, training um, bases, um, R&R kinds of uses. Such that my, the island that I live on, Oahu, roughly 25% of the land of this island is controlled by the U.S. Department of Defense um, for bases, for various um, testing facilities, um, and for yeah recreational activities for the military. Um, so that's a huge amount. And I think if people were to think about like the state that they live in and imagine yeah. that 25% of the land of the state that they lived in were controlled by the U.S. military and were inaccessible to Something the public, we're that would about. be, yeah. you know, give you a sense of the scope. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the opposition has often been around the destruction of sacred sites, the use of, um, Lands and the testing on them to make them either toxic or cracking of the water table, um, as well as, you know the problematic ways that Hawaii has then become this basing point for the launching of wars that are harmful for other lands and peoples. Um, So there are a number of reasons why people have opposed um, militarization of Hawaiian lands over the years, but, you know, we're talking about the destruction of burial grounds. um, With the island of Kaho'olawe, the entire island of Kaho'olawe had been used as a target basically for the U.S. Navy for for several decades um, and then became the site of um, modern Hawaiian resistance in the 1970s that is sort of similar to the way Alcatraz was for the American Indian movement. It it became this really important Mm -hmm. symbol or vieques in Puerto Rico. Um, And so people in the late 1970s actually went and occupied the island uh to put their themselves in between bombs and and the land and to say that we're not going to allow the continued killing and desecration of of this sacred place
1: yeah i um in your book you talked well, well one of the essay writers talked about um There were a couple of activists there um, that hadn't been evacuated off the island and they did continue bombing. And there was a lot of shock uh, in the community that they would keep doing that. Um, I wanted to also dig into this other branch of colonialism, which is a very big topic, which is the tourism industry in Hawaii. Um, You know, right now we have seen it actually in the news a little bit because COVID is really bad uh, in Hawaii. And we also have seen water shortages. And I think uh, the water shortage that we see happening in Hawaii and how uh, regular like local people are being treated versus like resorts. It's a really um, good microcosm of the issues that we're running into as capitalism sort of hits this brick wall where, you know, a few weeks ago, I know they were sending out alerts in New York City that said, hey, everybody turn your air conditioners up. It's, it's getting to how we're using too much energy. And people were posting, you know, all the pictures of Times Square where, you know, like the Gap has like a massive, you know, store that's air conditioned, you know, so it's, individuals are expected to cut back but things that are for-profit um you know they're just supposed to have unlimited resources um and and in practice that means really harming people who live there so you know i know it's a big question but feel free to you know take it wherever you want tell us a little bit about tourism about how hawaiians feel about tourism obviously Hawaii's not a monolith, but in your own experience, you know, what's happening there and what would you want people who are considering being tourists in Hawaii to know? Thank you for
2: this question. So important and it's such a vivid one for so many of us um, having, you know, lived the last year and a half through this pandemic because one of the things that happened fairly early on was that tourism shut down, like the flights were all shut down and it was the first time in our lives that we had ever seen what it was like to have Waikiki beach to ourselves you know to have um, our mountain trails or various sites that have just become completely overrun by visitors um, accessible to us once again to see fish uh, reproducing in the waters off of Waikiki again it it was just really an amazing time and then when tourism reopened in October, 2020, um, and immediately the next day, 22,000 tourists arrive. Um, and now we're back up to the levels where we'll be hitting once again, you know, 10 million tourists a year. Um, it's, it, it was uh, really a, a re-traumatizing, I, w- I would have to say, um, to go back to the conditions. Um, so just to go back, you know, I think it's important to note that these two things, we think about them separately, but they're really um, tied, militarism and tourism. And there are um, people like Teresia Tewa and Bernadette Gonzalez who have written about um, militarism and the ways that in places like Hawaii or the Philippines, other islands within the Pacific, um, our homes. Serve this dual function of being both a sighting of imperialist military, uh, military bases and troops and testing, um, and at the same time, this function of being um, a paradise and a place of getaway. And that representation of Hawai'i as a paradise, um, you know, really kind of conceals and yeah. masks the, the violence of, of militarization and, and the deep presence of it here. Um, so Hawaii it
0: was also interesting yeah. to hear you say how much of the space is reserved for military recreation, right? Like actually specifically just for military recreation. I think it might be interesting to hear about exactly how extensive that is because I'm not sure we're appreciating exactly what that even means.
2: Yeah. So there are, you know, places, for example, um, on this island where, um, you can't go to the beaches there. You, the, the military base, the Marine Corps base, for example, at Kaneohe, which is near where I grew up, is completely off limits unless you are military or military dependent. Oh, okay. So there are great surfing breaks there, beautiful beaches, um, but you can only go there if you have a military ID. Um, so, you know, the, there are places in our islands that many local people have never been able to experience because of that. Um, and some of these places are places where our ancestors, as as Kanaka, as Native Hawaiians, are are buried. Um, and it's a very similar situation in Guahan, in Guam. Actually, they're you know they have an even larger military presence in com- in comparison with the amount of land um, and people that they have there. Um, so tourism, anyway, you know, another thing I think that's really important and note for people who are interested in visiting Hawai'i, besides the fact that we are totally overrun right now by by people who are taxing resources, our hospitals are completely full. Last weekend, one of our hospitals declared a disaster because they've reached that point where COVID, um, the unvaccinated mostly, um, are filling the, the beds. Um, so. The inclusion of more tourists here is just not possible right now. In fact, the governor of Hawaii um, recently has discouraged people from from coming at this particular moment. Um, but another thing that it's really contributed to is the ongoing settler colonialism of people who come here and think, oh, this is such a beautiful place. I want to have a second home here, or I want to remote work here. So during the, um, during the pandemic, we've seen um, the average price of a single family home go from over in the high 800,000s at the beginning of the pandemic to over a million today. Um, So just within that last year, you know, and already 800,000 is a huge amount for any working family. This is a largely service-based economy here. So a lot of people work Mm. in the tourism industry as, um, you know, clerks, as people who are cleaning the hotel rooms. Um, You know, even if you have a a professional job, it's very difficult to make a living here in Hawaii. Um, So the uh, speculative investment of property in Hawaii of um people who have bought and now have short-term rentals airbnb mm. massive mm-hmm. problem massive problem um and even now <laughs> problems with um turo you know the the rental car kind of kind of like airbnb but for cars um even that's becoming a oh problem, yeah yeah you know? yeah
0: like you take someone else's car yeah,
2: yeah yeah because there are people who are you know trying to make it by but now have like seven cars outside in a residential area that they're renting out to tourists so um, it's it's really increasing the, um, the income gap the wealth gap mm-hmm. you know between the elites and your everyday working people in Hawaii.
1: Right well we've seen this um, everywhere this acceleration of sort of Uh, wealth hoarding and resource hoarding and um, in terms of addressing that in Hawaii, I mean, what kind of, you know, limitations? Personally, I feel like on a piece of land that very clearly is such limited property or such limited area for people to share, I mean, to me, it makes sense and really everywhere, to me, it makes sense that there's some kind of limitation on the amount of individual property that someone can own. Um, but what what are your thoughts on, you know, I guess my question would be two, two things. What are your thoughts about moving forward as activists trying to address these issues in Hawaii? What are your thoughts about working within the system, the legal system of the American government versus Outside of the system and the sort of protests and, um, and not other the government, actions to the two that party have been taking sister, place, right? Do activists find political
0: expression, you know, in the sort of traditional democratic process that unfolds? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, great, great questions. Um, so I would say, you know, Native Hawaiian movements and. Um, the movements that are not exclusive to Native Hawaiians, but the movements for sovereignty and and independence are, um, you know, centered and led by Kanaka, but really are are inclusive of people of various ethnicities, Um, because the Hawaiian kingdom, the independent Hawaiian kingdom itself was a multi-ethnic, multi-racial kingdom and government that represented those people. so the, the movements, though, have taken, you know, both strategies, multiple strategies have, you know, kind of uh, one of our movement leaders of... Um, my parents' generation, Skippy Owane, I remember him uh, saying something like, you know, when you're in a fight, you kick, bite, scratch, do whatever you can, win. You know, that's yeah. that's what it's about. So our movements have taken both um, direct action strategies, like with the occupation of Kohoolave, like with the 2015 and 2019 um, blockades on Mauna Kea. Um, and they have also taken... The route of trying to use whatever um, possible avenues there are within the legal system. So it's a um, it's a multi pronged effort, but really always coming back to land, you know, and in the way that so many of um, so many indigenous movements are right about. It's kind of um, the hashtag land back. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's about being able to restore people to lands so I would say you know for folks who want to help and support um, there are the there are such a range of different kinds of movements there are mm. um, initiatives and organizations that are restoring um, fish ponds the traditional forms of aquaculture and mariculture to, to grow protein in a sustainable way as our ancestors did. Um, and lo ikalo, you know, the, the wetland taro field. So restoring our um, ancestral food systems. And if that's what you're into, you know, support those kinds of things. And, and that in itself is incredibly um, political because if when we're able to feed ourselves, we're able to have more of the ability to dissent against those systems that, you know, mm-hmm. currently, um, control a lot of the the import the importing of the Dependency. things that we need for basic yeah. life yeah um, so that's really important um, cultural movements the movements to restore language Hawaiian language and um, arts like like hula you know dancing and chanting um, have been really important and have powerfully come together with um, land protection movement. So you saw this on Mauna Kea in 2019, where um, the Ala Hulukupuna, the road that accessed the Mauna Kea summit was held for a month. Largely led, that was largely led by hula masters, you know, master, um, I mean, there are people of all kinds, but the ceremonies that took place every day, three times a day on the islands were, inclusive of hula and chant and were led by these uh, master teachers. So, um, yeah, many different ways to support, um, but those are just, you know, a few things that come to mind.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you started to touch on these um, cultural traditions. It's really uh, inspiring, I think, and beautiful to see the way that Hawaiians have continue to preserve this culture this beautiful culture Um, and in the book you know I think um, one of the things that was really noticeable was that um, all the writers continue to use Hawaiian language and words and really didn't baby the readers they weren't like this is what this means a lot of times they sort of introduce the word and uh, sort of have you figure it out through context and we're very also clear that there's not in a lot of cases, because this uh, this language is encoding so much culture, there's not a direct translation from the Hawaiian word to an English word because um, mm. you know it's encoding this cultural concept that maybe doesn't really exist um, mm. in the Western world, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but so, tell us yeah. a little bit uh, you know about the Hawaiian language and also like these efforts to restore you know teaching of the language in Hawaii.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Hawaiian is um, part of the family of uh, the Austronesian family of languages. Um, Our language is very similar to um, islands in other parts of what is now called Polynesia, places like Tahiti or the Cook Islands, um, Aotearoa, New Zealand. All of our languages are very, very similar. Um, And we had a very robust um, educational system, a national educational system in um, the 1800s when schools were first created and schools were in the Hawaiian language, teachers were teaching in Hawaiian, people were printing newspapers. We're um, unique in that um, for indigenous languages, Mm. we have an archive of well over a million pages of writing in our native language by our ancestors Mm. from that time who we're seeing mass death because of introduced diseases and knew that the only way to preserve a lot of the knowledge that we um, had traditionally passed orally was to write it down. And so they loved writing and printing and publishing. Um, and I tell my students that it's kind of like, you know, the way that social media just exploded for them. Newspapers was like social media, you know, they, they just, really loved writing in. So, people would write in um, with chants that they had composed for the death of loved ones. They were translating, you know, um, great epic stories um, from English into Hawaiian. They were writing our epic stories in Hawaiian and serializing those over time. So, we have this really rich archive, which is amazing. Um, But in the beginning of um, the u s. occupation in the beginning of the twentieth century, um it was very clear to the elites who were taking um, seizing power at the time that they needed to stamp out the language and that they needed to erase um, the history of you know brilliant achievements of our ancestors. And so um, the language was was banned, and there were there was no government funding for um, schooling in in the language. And so for a large part of the 20th century, um, Hawaiian went under, underground or um, was very, very marginalized. People were beaten for speaking the language um, to the point where in my parents' generation, you know, they just weren't raised speaking it at all. <clears throat> and then um, as a part of that rebirth in the 19th Seventies around land movements, around the restoration of um, pride in cultural mm-hmm. traditions and um, agricultural systems and all those things. The language, obviously, is a huge part of that. And so there was um, a push to make Hawaiian, um, one, a, a language of the state of Hawaii. So it actually is now um, in the Hawaii state constitution that Hawaiian is an official language mm-hmm. of the state. Um, that's not to say that the state adequately supports <laughs> Hawaiian um, in terms of its usage, but it is there. So we can always point to that. Um, but really, grassroots efforts to create preschools to create k through twelve schools to have to the point now where um, people are writing dissertations in Hawaiian where um, music and television programs are are you know being uh, written in Hawaiian again. So um, that's been a massive part of our movement, for sure.
1: I think that um, that tendency toward violent suppression that we see in all of these across all these indigenous cultures from, you know, language to dance to traditions really speaks to the power that those things hold, because, you know, it's. Almost strange how much of an interest the state takes in sort of crushing um, these cultural traditions um, and really speaks to this need for this hegemonic control of the way people are thinking and behaving and talking and acting. Um, so that's very interesting. Thank you. Um, I did want to also ask you let me know if this is out of your wheelhouse, but just a little bit about. How Hawaiians are feeling about the climate Mm. crisis? I feel like this is really at the intersection, also, of colonialism and corporate-led development, and um, you know, being in the uh, Pacific, also living on islands. You know, it's
0: like it's the whole situation. Living on islands.
1: Yeah. yeah, So, um, any thoughts on on the climate crisis?
2: uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, we're we're very aware of of it. I mean, although we're on high volcanic islands, so unlike our um, cousins in places like the Marshall Islands or you know other low-lying islands and atolls where the islands are already being consumed by the ocean, um, we're uh, not as impacted by by sea level rise. But we're certainly impacted by um reef death and and the rising um temperature of the oceans were impacted by storms we will we will probably become more and more a place of refuge for climate refugees in the pacific who are you know Mm -hmm, leaving mm -hmm. their lower lying islands and atolls um our cultural traditions and practices are definitely impacted um, whether it's um, salt intrusion into the ground for where we do wetland um, agriculture historically if it's you know if it's much closer to the ocean we're already getting saltwater intrusion into the water table um, or whether it's, the diseases that have impacted um, plants that are historically really culturally important for hula or for healing. Um, we've had um, a major, you know, issues with yeah. that. Yeah. And we're also having fires, just like everyone
1: Everything's on else fire, across
2: yeah. the globe as, you know, as our, yeah. So we're certainly feeling it and people are very concerned. Um, and this is c- ties directly back to tourism, we could completely go um, 100% green energy, you know, renewable energy for our electric sources here. But unless we change um, jet travel, you know, that is really the largest um, segment right. of our burning of fossil fuels here in Hawaii is for jet travel right. to the islands. To and from the islands.
1: Um, okay, well, we're uh, coming up on 40, 45 minutes. So I just want to wrap us up with maybe another question around this uh, land usage. I mean, we talked about the military owning a lot of land, we talked about um, tourists coming and buying up property. I also know that there's this big corporate presence mm. in Hawaii with, um, you know, Syngenta running these GE test fields in Maui. Um, so talk to us a little bit about. Um, the corporate presence in Hawaii, and what's been done to push back on that and and why they're even in Hawaii in the first place.
2: Yeah, so there's an essay um, in the book about the ways that Hawaii has also been a center for um, GM crop testing. Uh, so you know, a large uh, amount of land, particularly on particular certain islands, has been utilized for the testing of GM crops. Um, and what the major concern there, in addition to just the controversial, you know, and the various ways people feel about genetic modification in general, is the use of um, pesticides on those lands um, and the ways that that takes those lands out of um, production of food crops that c- could be edible <laughs> by, by people here. Um, and those movements have you know often been led by Kanaka, but are again, um, include all kinds of people because everybody's concerned about health and everyone's concerned about water and everyone is concerned about whether there are toxic pesticides right next to schools or um, care homes for elders. Um, so it just comes down to, again, kind of this vision that Hawai'i, um, like other islands in the Pacific, are far-flung, that it's fine to use these places as guinea pigs for testing, whether it's military testing or um, GM crop testing. Um, and at the same time, it's this paradise, you know, that, it, that is... Um... So again, it comes back to, I think, people... Using those lands for food that feeds us again, and restoring um, indigenous food systems, restoring water to the lands that were taken all the way back in the sugar in the beginning of the sugar plantations. It's that same water that was taken from the mid 1800s that is feeding GM, uh, you know, fields today. GM corn seed fields today um so it's it's really the ongoing iterations of uh, historic you know exploitation and seizure
1: of indigenous lands right yeah, yeah um absolutely. well i want to thank you so much for being here i think you know this is something that Americans in particular really have a, you know, responsibility to learn about, and I hope that uh, people will go out and and get a nation rising and learn more about the the work that you've been doing. So we really appreciate you, you being here and and all your work to, um, you know, communicate with us about what's going on in Hawaii. And um, to anyone who's thinking about uh, tourism, don't go. (laughs) Don't go don't right go. now, at least. Yep. Don't go. Don't go. <laughs> don't go. Thank you so much. Uh, that's our message. Having me. It's our reverse Hi. Hawaii tourism board message. Yes. <laughs> mm. Mahalo. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Comite. Committee. committee, committee to rule, committee, we yang we Committee, we committee.